Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, Murder at the Warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Morgan Rector, host of the Human Monsters True Crime Podcast. Do you find life boring within the comfort zone? This is the right show for you. It will test your endurance. The offenders profiled are among the most inhumane. These people specialize in the unthinkable. Human Monsters, available wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. There are certain places where you should feel safe. A small town hospital seems like it should be one of those places. On October 5th, 2006, a woman was sentenced for the deaths she committed as a nurse at a small town hospital in Texas. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Vicki Dawn Carson Jackson was born on February 13, 1966, and moved with her family from Indiana to Nocona, Texas, when she was just 15 years old. Hoping the drier climate would help her little brother's asthma, the family purchased a dilapidated home on the east side of town, where her father worked as a shade tree mechanic and her mother worked at a nursing home. To try and make ends meet, Vicky went to work at the home with her mother. She was a good kid, never broke any laws, and was considered the classic teenage wallflower. Modest, unassuming, and dressed in secondhand clothing, Vicky never gave any indication that she had something darker brewing behind her kind facade. During her junior year in high school, Vicky, who had been working in the laundry room, was promoted to a nurse's aide and was described by coworkers as kind to her patients, did the work because she genuinely cared about them, and took pride in what she was doing. It was during that same year in high school that Vicky, while out at a local game room, met a man named Johnny McLaughlin. After telling her that he thought she was cute, the pair hit it off and Vicky convinced her parents to let her get married. Within a year, Vicky and Johnny, who was five years older than her, divorced. 
She moved back home, graduated in May of 1984, and began working full-time at the nursing home. Trying to save money so that she could go to the nearby junior college so she could become a licensed vocational nurse, the plans derailed slightly when she found out that she was pregnant. Marrying Leroy Carson in May of 1985, a man who told her he loved her after just days together, Vicky gave birth to her son Curtis and very quickly became pregnant again. Giving birth to her daughter in 1986, Vicky waited about a year before getting back on her original track and attending nursing school part-time. In 1989, while raising two children, caring for her home and husband, going to school, and working the night shift at the nursing home, Vicky finally became an LVN. She was promoted to the night shift nurse and, devoting all of the time that she could to her job, Vicky somehow made that hectic schedule work. Unfortunately, her marriage didn't seem to have the same success as her career did, and in 1994, Leroy moved out, and just two years later, the pair were officially divorced. He later told her that, had she not gotten pregnant, they never would have married. Though devastated by the blow, Vicky didn't let it deter her from living the dream that she always wanted, one where she was a successful nurse, a devoted mother, and a beloved wife. In May of 1997, she spent the entire night at the Third Spur Bar speaking with no one before finally deciding that she would walk straight up to the next man who walked through the door and demand a dance. That man happened to be Kirk Jackson, and two months later, they were married at a public park. Not long after their wedding, Kirk was hired at the Nocona General Hospital to work as a night shift nurse's aide. Vicky, wanting to spend more time with her new husband, also got a job there working as a night shift LVN and telling her children that her new goal was to become a registered nurse, started taking classes at the community college. She promised her family that if she reached her goals, she would be able to buy them a nicer house and make more money. Though it seemed that Vicky was finally getting everything that she wanted, tensions started to brew within her marriage that by 1999 were so bad that her son Curtis packed up and moved in with his father. And just a few months later, her daughter Jennifer did the same. Whether or not this upheaval was the trigger or things had been brewing for quite some time, Vicky went to a public mental health center to seek the help of a counselor. When speaking to her mother about the visit, Vicky told Jennifer that she might be bipolar. When the teenager asked what that meant, her mother coldly explained, it means I could kill you and get away with it. The next time Jennifer went to spend the weekend with her mother, she slept with a baseball bat beside her bed. Completely alone now, Kirk having left her and having to pay $300 a month to Leroy for child support, Vicky's mental health started declining rapidly. But known for her caring nature, the work she had done over the last decade or so, and how good she was at her job, no one around her seemed to really notice. That was until December 11th, 2000, when the dedicated professional took a chance and in a small hospital with only 18 rooms and about 15 patients at any given time, she picked up a syringe and plunged it into her first victim. Vicky, now 34 years old, began injecting her patients with mivacurium chloride, a drug that paralyzes the respiratory system, and in the end, took the lives of at least 10 patients inside Nocona General Hospital from December of 2000 to February 18th of 2001. Unlike the other nurses turned killers, Vicky did not seek to end the suffering from the elderly or terminally ill, 
nor was she a nurse looking for the approval of her co-workers when she valiantly saved lives. No, it seemed like Vicki Dawn Carson Jackson simply wanted to take a life for the sake of doing it. What's more shocking is that, given how small the hospital was and the size of the town, many of the people left in her care were townspeople that she had known for most of her life. Former residents who she cared for, neighbors who lived nearby, parents of friends, and people she said hi to while out and about. In fact, according to an article written for Texas Monthly, Vicky might have used myvicurium chloride to kill her former husband's grandfather and even attended the funeral afterward to try and help the family through their grief. As far as victims go, there was 87-year-old Elgie Hudson, who, admitted to the hospital for nothing more than a broken leg, was injected with the deadly serum on December 20th and just 20 minutes later, was joined by 62-year-old Sanford Mitchell, who came in for help with his cirrhosis. A few days later, she did the same to 50-year-old Barbara Atbury, who came in for back pain. And later that day, 87-year-old Boyd Burnett, who came in because he felt disoriented. None of these ailments were particularly deadly, but for one reason or another, Vicky was able to get away completely unscathed and unnoticed by peers who tried to save these patients. Five days later, she killed 80-year-old James Gore and 79-year-old Gertie Matthews. And as nurses gathered around to try and revive both of the patients, Vicky simply stood back and quietly watched the aftermath of her decision. By the end of December, seven patients from Nocona General died after going into respiratory arrest, despite none of them having any serious history of respiratory problems. Assuming the hospital had just been hit with a, quote, run of bad luck, Dr. Chance Dingler and his brother, Dr. Len Dingler, thought nothing of the sudden deaths and continued to run the hospital as normal. Within the first eight days of January, five more patients lost their lives after suddenly going into respiratory arrest. By mid-January, Vicky, emboldened by the lack of suspicion, decided to inject her deadly poison into Jimmy Ray Holder while his wife sat right there beside him. She then went into the room of 95-year-old Oma Weiler, and after the first attempt failed due to a quick-acting nurse who resuscitated the patient, injected her for a second time four days later, and this time killed her. Now, while the doctors may or may not have suspected something nefarious in their hospital, people around the town started talking, and at some point, Tracy Messler, the editor of the Nocona News, told his wife Linda that he had never run so many obituaries in all of his career, around the same time that the owner of the town's flower shops mentioned to a friend how he was selling a record-breaking amount of funeral arrangements. With the nurses now jokingly calling the night shift the, quote, killing crew, one noticed how odd it was that the last staffer in the rooms was often Vicky, and another how casually she would walk up to the nurse's station to announce a patient was having trouble breathing. On the night of January 11th, Vicky managed to take the lives of 82-year-old J.T. Nichols and 78-year-old John Williams. And then on January 30th, all hell broke loose when after 82-year-old Orville Moore passed away, a day or two after calling Vicky a, quote, fat ass, she walked into the room of 14-year-old Lydia Weatherid and injected the myvacurium chloride into her IV. According to the sources, Lydia knew Vicky's children and had, according to the schoolyard gossip, recently turned Curtis down for a date. Almost immediately after exiting the room, Lydia told her mother that her chest was hurting. 
Suddenly losing the ability to speak, the young girl began grasping at her throat and her mother, horrified, began screaming for a doctor. Already on the floor because of Orville Moore's respiratory failure, the doctor himself rushed in and was able to revive her. One day later, Nurse Vicky went after two more patients. There had been four respiratory arrests in just two days, and finally, hospital staff started to consider that, just maybe, someone amongst them might be responsible for the deaths. While they wondered, a technician from the hospital's pharmacy walked up to the chief of staff, Dr. Len Dingler, and mentioned that vials of myvacurium chloride were missing from one of the crash carts. This sent them straight to the hospital records, and they soon learned that Vicki Dawn Carson Jackson, beloved nurse, was often the last staffer to be checking on the patients prior to their sudden deaths. The problem was, there was no way to prove this, and because she was such a devoted employee, there was really no cause for firing her. While they agonized over what to do next, Kirk Jackson's 91-year-old grandfather was admitted to the hospital with a high fever and cellulitis. Whether it was an act of revenge or not, we will likely never know. But on February 4th, 2001, Vicki walked to the nurse's station and told them that E.E. E. Jackson, who everyone called Preacher, had suddenly passed away. She then told Kirk, who walked outside and wept. And just two days later, the hospital's CEO, Charles Norris, met with the town's police chief, Kent Holcomb, and told him about the deaths at Nocona General. In addition to those already discussed, here are some of the other known victims of Vicki Dawn Carson Jackson. Donna Alice Jennings, who was 100 years old, and Dorothy Jean Vandenberg, who was 78. Immediately after informing law enforcement, an investigation involving the Texas Rangers and the FBI began. During such, they looked into more than 20 patients who passed away over the course of just a handful of months. While exhumations began, local newspapers revealed that a civil lawsuit was filed on the behalf of 61-year-old Donnelly Reed against nurse Vicki Jackson. They claimed that she had injected an unknown drug into his IV tube, and though he managed to survive the initial ordeal, he passed away from pneumonia just two months later. A week after that, another lawsuit was filed by the children of 87-year-old Boyd Bruce Burnett, who died on December 24, 2000. By this point, Vicky had officially been fired from the hospital and found a new job at the local grocery store where, on July 16, 2002, she was arrested and charged with four counts of capital murder. With a gag order in place, her trial was scheduled to begin in October of 2004, but in January of that year, an additional six murder charges were added and her bond was raised from $2 million to $6 million. Her first trial, after the judge determined that comments made by the prosecutor had prejudiced jurors, ended in a mistrial. And as a result, the next one was moved to San Angelo with a fresh jury. After a series of legal delays, the trial officially began and residents from Nocona caravaned to San Angelo to watch all the proceedings. But before the jury selection could even begin, Vicky stood in front of the judge and said that she wanted to plead no contest to the capital murder charges against her. According to the sources, she didn't want to watch as her daughter took the stand against her. She was sentenced to life in prison as a result on October 5th, 2006. Her earliest parole date is 2042. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. 
Please join me again tomorrow to a terrible thing happened on October 6th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.